Open your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Timothy. The book of 1 Timothy will be in chapter 3 this morning. We'll read a moment from verses 8 through 13. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 8 is where we'll begin. Last night somehow I clicked on a link for a TED talk on the subject of bees. So for 15 minutes before bed, I learned about bees. And I had a nice little intro into some of our subject matter here. Beers, bees apparently have no, uh, no coordinated leader, no centralized command. And yet they're a wonderfully, beautifully, amazingly coordinated uh, creature. Humans are like busy bees in so many ways, but we are not like bees in every way. There's no organizational leadership book that would prescribe no organizational leadership where you get a group of people in one spot. And no, organi- no healthy organization would come without some type of clear structure and clear roles. It's clear as to who's doing what, the right people in the right roles doing the right things. And there's no doubt a great variety of types of structures and roles out there, but we ought to all agree it's always helpful, always needful if we're to work well together, whatever we're doing as humans, for us to be clear on what the roles are and who is doing, who is doing what. So no surprise, there's structure in the church, and God in his wisdom has provided clarity on who's to do what and who is to fill what kind of role, what kind of person belongs in what, what spot. So let's read together 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13 on the role this morning of deacon. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, uh, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The role of deacon. Well, before we jump into unpacking this role and specifically what we find here this morning, a list of qualifications For the role, let's review a bit of what we learned last week about a different role, the role that he outlined qualifications for in verses one through seven, that role of elder. What is an elder? Well, elders are examples to the flock. That's what the name elder entails maturity, an example out ahead of the flock. Elders are leaders of the flock. That's another word we saw used for the role of elder instead of overseer. They care about every sheep. But not only every sheep, but the flock as a whole. They're the big picture guys. Elders are leaders. Elders are also feeders and caregivers and protectors. All with the word of God and prayer. They're called pastors. That's where the word shepherd comes from. Shepherd or pastor. Elders are also elders. That is plural. Elders. God hasn't given to any one church, I promise you, uh, a super Christian one man to follow, but a plurality of men to follow who are gifted in a variety of diverse ways and complement one another and lead 
together. What makes an elder? The Holy Spirit appoints them, we're told in Scripture, and he does so through a process of identification and qualification and an appointment. And the process led by elders, affirmed by the congregation, and the qualifications listed for elders are notable, which we saw last week, which are similar to what we'll see this week for deacons. They're notable in part because of how unnotable they actually are. You may have noticed it's kind of like the description of how all Christians ought to live. It's the, it's the description of a mature Christian, someone who's been following Jesus for a while, has been doing that well, and therefore can be entrusted with leading others to do the same. And elders are required to be able to teach, for it's how Jesus leads his flock is through his word taught and preached. The qualifications listed for elders are notable in part for how unnotable they are. Our process for qualification here at Heritage involves the congregation in identifying potential men for the role. I didn't unpack this last week, but it's worth just outlining a bit here. The elders then evaluate possibilities and then identify specific men. We have a a multi-page, maybe two multi-page, but it's just right, I think, uh, questionnaire or application that uh, a potential candidate for eldership will, will fill out on everything that we saw last week by way of qualification. We want to pass through every qualification God has outlined uh, for these men so that we do due diligence and faithfully fulfill his word there. And his wife is involved in that process, commenting and being consulted. And then after a process, we put some names before you so that on the day of voting, if you will, the, the day that we affirm those men to the role, there should be if you have done your job in bringing to us any matters of disqualification, and if we've done our job in searching those things out in a more up-close fashion, there should be no instances of known disqualification among our membership. And so that day when we vote for elders, that's a day of agreeing together and uniting together in the Lord around those men. Similar process we have for deacons. How do we respond to elders? With suspicion, with challenge, with conspiracy theories, and with unhappiness. That is how we respond to elders. No, 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 not at all. With followership and support only when they say and do precisely what we would say and do in their shoes. No, no, not at all. Maybe some of you have been in churches that are that way. Praise God, this is not, this is not one of those churches. I've been in churches where we were healthy in part because other people fled churches like that to be a part of us. Maybe that's the case for some of you you here. Of course not. Scripture says how we're to respond to elders. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. I love that. One of the ways that you highly esteem and regard and respect your elders is to be at peace among yourselves. (laughs) I can say that as a dad on Father's Day. I love it when my kids are at peace with one another. It's a great service to me and a blessing. And then Hebrews 13, obey your leaders and submit to them for they, according to God's design, are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Think about that. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. So please, Don't let your elders serve you with groaning, but with joy. Obey them and submit to them with joy yourselves, for they give account to God for your soul. What a a blessing that is that God has put on the ground among us, men who would account to him for you.
In fact, the reflection on authority in the church, the church's willingness to take the lead of godly elders on matters not stated in the Bible is a good test for a church's response to authority of the Bible in general. I was corresponding recently with a friend who is an elder at a church, and he had this to say, and this was just just right. He said, when I trace what I experienced of the arc of our church's adolescence, I think preaching on this topic of eldership became the backbone of our entire strategy. It was very much like evangelism itself, establishing the authority of the word first and getting the order of things right. Congregations that run roughshod over the authority of the church are probably running roughshod over their Bibles in general. Biblical eldership is such a great way to give the church a tangible and concrete way of testing its own submission to authority. Not everyone passes the test, but the church is purified. I can say, I've seen it. Wow, that's an elder speaking. That's big picture perspective. That's dependence on the Lord. Those are even words from hard days, no doubt. So thank you for taking the lead of your elders. Bang and steaming elders, of course, doesn't mean blind followership. We love it when you seek us with questions and when you mean to understand a way that we're leading in which maybe we haven't been clear and certainly to open the scriptures with us and to to see what they say. But by way of summary, elders lead, they lead spiritually and the congregations follow. Where do deacons fit? Where do deacons fit? That's where we arrive today. It's important to clarify the role of an elder so that we can make sure we properly understand the role of a deacon. Let's start with the last thing Paul said about deacons to be the first thing that we say about deacons this morning. Verse 13, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So the office of deacon, we should and must say, is a humble and honorable service. It is a humble and honorable service. And we should all see our deacons that way and our deacons should feel that from the word and from us. He says, those who serve well. Deacons are servants. That's what the word actually means. You know, some words in our Bibles and that we use are translations. There's a word in Greek and then we translate it to the word that we, we know that's the closest match in, in English. And then some words are transliterations. The word we use in English is actually basically a different kind of sounding, but same word that was actually said in Greek. Baptize is like that, from baptizo, or deacon, from a word that sounds just about the same. Diakonos, servant. It's a humble service. That's what service is, and it's honorable. It yields a good standing among the people, and it yields confidence in the faith that we have in the Lord Jesus. There's something about serving in a role of leadership which actually calls you to greater faithfulness. There's a sense of weight to it. And in serving in that fashion, your confidence in your own faith and in God's work and in the truth of his word increases. There's something special about that. It's a humble and honorable service. I went fishing on Facebook this week. Uh, Some of you answered. Uh, Joshua down here answered. I asked, ever work as a server in a restaurant? What makes an excellent server? A good server, fill in the blank. Go. And I crowdsourced some answers. I got, I got at least one person-specific answer. It said, constantly fills my cup with Coke Zero. 
So that's one. Maybe you've got your own. But then there was some really choice, probably from those of you who have served in a restaurant before. Every person answers. Checks on you often, but not too often. Okay? Is able to leave it at the door of the dining room. Whatever is going on, frustrations, irritations, anxiety about anything in life, it's kind of like being an actor in that way. You have to make each guest feel at ease in your space. One put it especially well, is attentive to anticipate the needs of their customers before they even realize what they need. And I can relate with that. Didn't I just finish that large uh, glass of Dr. Pepper? Oh, yes, I did, but it's full again. And again, didn't I just finish that large glass of Dr. Pepper? And it's full again. And usually I'll, I'll see, they don't always know your need. I'll have to tell them, you're going to have to stop filling up that Dr. Pepper because I'm not allowed to have any more. One time uh, it was lunch and I used to have this rule. I like wouldn't have soda at home, but I would have it if I would be out, out, out to eat with somebody. And that was like a way to keep, you know, only so much coming in. And then you end up eating out too much. So I had lunch and I had like three and then I had dinner. I had three. I was shaking. So I had to to change my rule. That was a while ago. So the theme here is, the theme here is service, knowing, knowing what you need. And every role in service industries, every role of servanthood has its own set of considerations and, and where the role fits. Every role does. But consider that the image of a table waiter is actually connected to our role we're looking at this morning, the role of deacon. It's a support and servant role. To extend the metaphor a bit, the idea of a table waiter is not the same as a chef who's designing and directing the menu in the kitchen. It's not the manager who bears the big picture responsibility to the owner for the whole operation in a unique way. Table winning is a good image. In fact, it's our root actually has not in exactly the same kind of table waiting, but the root for the word actually, and the role has its root in table waiting itself. Turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 6. I want to show you something. The book of Acts chapter 6. In your New Testament, you've got four gospel accounts of Jesus' life and work. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Jesus is raised from the dead. The book of Acts picks up where those gospel accounts leave off. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenes, and Nicholas, and a proselyte of Antioch. And they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. 
It's a beautiful passage. A problem had arisen in the life of the early church. A problem typical with growing groups, with increasing numbers. A problem of complexity and consternation and complaint. And an answer needed for growing groups is often and usually growing leadership depth and breadth. And sometimes that means growing leadership complexity too. But it's just a matter of numbers, not just a matter of numbers, but of kind, of division of labor. And we see that here. The church needs to take care of its own, but not at the expense of some leaders fulfilling certain roles. And so the apostles in this case were to give themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. All the kinds of hands-on urgent stuff that was right in front of them, they recognized if they gave themselves to that as they must, as they must ensure is taken care of, they couldn't also do what they what was a matter of first priority is feeding the flock with the word. And so they'd appointed deacons. They ordered a process for appointing deacons that included the congregation to identify. And then the elders laid hands on them. We reflect something of that here. Church needs to take care of its own, but it can do that in a number of ways. They answered the need and freed the apostles to lead from the word and prayer. Before we proceed with qualifications, which is our subject for this morning, a few clarifications. Sometimes it's helpful to summarize what something is not in order to clarify what something is. We've kind of done that already by looking at elders, and now we'll do that by making some other contrasts. No doubt there are many different backgrounds represented even in this room this morning. You may have grown up in in a church that approached deacons in a certain way. You may have been at this church, even as we've matured in our understanding of eldership and deacons, so it's good to clarify up front here what they're not. Deacons are not elders. They're not elders. In some churches, deacons are basically eldering. They function like a governing board or an executive committee. That's not the only thing elders do, but they are responsible for the whole flock. And then those deacons would hire a pastor And even in their structure, the pastor has almost delegated the spiritual teaching leadership that anything he might do or say has to be run through the deacons. Deacons are not elders. This role here that we see created in the book of Acts is kind of a proto-deacon role. The official office was not cemented yet, but it's where it began. And you can see the relationship of the apostles and these deacons assigned to deaconing work is the model. So deacons are not elders. They're not a check on the elders, or at least any more than any new covenant member of the church is with the Bible in their hand. It's not like uh, two houses, a little competition to keep things balanced. This might feel like it's needed at times, but only where elders themselves are actually not qualified. But it's an unbiblical patch that exacerbates the problem and makes for a pretty ugly experience of church life. And you may have been in a church where you had these two bodies that kind of checked each other and balanced each other and even fought each other. No good. Deacons are not a deliberative body designing philosophy and gatekeeping on ideas and direction. And at Heritage, that's not what we're appointing, who we're appointing, and what we're asking them to do. So when you appoint elders, you're appointing, if you will, a deliberative body. It's one thing that they do. And you're expecting us to, with a Bible in our hand and with a lot of time and prayer to work through ideas and direction and philosophy. You trust that to us. It's a sacred trust, but you don't entrust that to your deacons. 
They're not a building and grounds committee or just a bank. It's much more broader and personal and frankly spiritual than that. Although it involves much of that in freeing up the elders. They're not necessarily, merely biblically speaking, a formal group that meets. So if you're at a different church in years past or you're at a new church in years ahead, while our elder deacons meet as a group and function partly as a group for some of their work, that's not necessary to the role. We do think so much because of where and when we live in terms of boards, but while there can be overlap in how we go about our work, it's not necessary, it's not the biblical imagery. So we have to be careful not to import from our experience of other leadership teams uh, immediately over into our understanding of elders or deacons in the church. But the groupness of a team of deacons isn't necessary to the role. It can often be helpful. Though it can be, with elders or deacons, group meetings can subtly, in the life of the church and in the life of those who hold the office, lead those who hold the office to think that their work is actually what happens in that room. We have to be careful of that as elders, that we don't think of ourselves as a, a decision-making or reporting board or, or a board made of, of lay and staff elders who hold merely the, the paid guys accountable. We all hold each other accountable, but really the vast majority of our work happens outside the meetings, praying with people, praying, leading, shepherding, caring, teaching, feeding, protecting, guarding. And the meetings are a kind of a, a touch base, a summit, because there are some things we can't do when we're apart as elders. Likewise with deacons, it's helpful to get together for certain things. The function is that of caring for the flock in strategic ways that frees the elders up for their work of leadership from and under the word. So by way of summary, the elders oversee and shepherd and they give account to God for the flock. They oversee your souls. Pray for them. Deacons serve uh, the flock under the oversight of the elders in especially tangible ways. What are the qualifications for this role of deacon? That's the question for the rest of the morning. So much of this will overlap with what we explored for the role of elder. And so I won't tease some questions out that I did last week. And if you weren't with us last week, I'd urge you to go and listen to that sermon. As if you're a member here, I'd always urge you to listen to sermons you aren't in the room for. But in part because some of this sermon will may, may feel a bit incomplete, incomplete without it. So what are the qualifications? He writes in verse 10, let them be tested first and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. There's a kind of a a testing that's entailed here. So three tests. Let's organize our time that way. Three tests. The first test, verse eight, his dignity, his dignity. In this way, this qualification, they are Certainly like elders, this man, a deacon, is to be dignified, respectable, a mature and intact man of publicly known and demonstrated character. How do we know when we're looking at that kind of man? Well, in this case, we can go by process of elimination, at least for part of it. He gives us three negatives to clarify what he means by dignified. First, The man is not double-tongued. He's not double-tongued. We speak about double-speak 
or speaking out of two sides of our mouth, saying one thing in one place, but saying a different thing, even with a shade of different meaning in a different place to serve a different purpose, but in contradiction. A man whose words move with the winds of the opinion of the person in front of him. And you can never quite tell who you're talking to. And this man actually doesn't always know he's doing it for he's self-deceived. But we elders and the church needs to be smarter than that. I've been around this type of person. Sometimes they're clumsy and it's just really obvious that they're double-tongued. Sometimes they're cunning. They work hard at words and they work hard not to be detected in the way that they're using words. And they can be hard to track because you have to be with them in place after place after place. But they'll say one thing to one person, maybe a leader, but then another thing to this person over here and another person to this thing, to this group over here. And meanwhile, they're They're shaping and moving almost like chess, pawns into place. Leaders have to be very attuned to double speak, double-tongued people within the congregation. Lest you wake up one day and find out there's a wall or an army assembled with a certain story, a certain constellation of facts true or untrue, and a certain demand of some kind. Double speak goes a long way to doing a lot of damage to the church. People who speak one way in one context in a different, a different way in the next. It has to do with integrity, the integrity of the person, that they are always who they actually are. This man would be good at manipulating the world with his words, putting this person against that. A tongue can set a forest ablaze and it can burn a church down to the ground. I know stories. This man is not double-tongued. We should not appoint deacons who speak out of both sides of their mouth. Neither can this man be addicted to much wine. I don't think this means we should be comfortable with him being addicted to a little wine. It means wine can't be a problem for him. Addiction is a problem, and it's broader than merely alcohol. Certainly addiction to any substance. Frankly, addiction to food or other types of uh, gluttony would be included within this under the umbrella of he must be dignified and and blameless. He must not be controlled by anything external to him, but the word of God. He must have command over himself and his appetites must be under control for him to serve as a deacon. Neither must he be greedy for dishonest gain. He cannot be greedy for dishonest gain. And that doesn't mean he can be greedy for honest gain. It's just that greed often yields a line crossing of integrity and even a desire for dishonest gain. It's where greed itself, which is a vice, leads. Greed itself, a form of dishonesty, for it lies about what is truly precious in this life. So he can't be double-tongued. He can't be addicted to wine. And he can't be greedy, greedy for dishonest gain. Why is it critical that the man be dignified in this way? Why is it critical if they're doing support work? Well, because of the the kind of work, the kind of support work that they're entrusted with. Remember what we learned from Acts 6. Let me just jog your memory and walk you through that passage lightly again. And with a careful ear, we will hear 
that we're integral to the elders' leadership. Deacons are integral to the elders' leadership in three ways. In three ways. First, in the meeting of physical needs, which puts them awfully close with the people under the elders' care. He said, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The church there in uh, Jerusalem uh, was populated by many Jews who had come to faith, but also Hellenistic Jews. These are Jews who would have been scattered abroad, but had come back. And having come back, they had different culture, different languages even. And it appears that they had gathered roughly together as a, that large congregation. Cultures identify with each other. I'm not sure that's all terribly wrong. It's not the problem here. We're all under one roof. And the Hellenistic Jews were unhappy because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. <clears throat> These groups had apparently naturally congregated together according to culture. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the deacons are limited only to the care of widows of one group. So the deacons of that church are responsible for the care of, all, excuse me, the elders of the entire church. And so deacons were assigned to care for and to meet the need of these Hellenistic Christians who were Jews who had this complaint in trouble, caring for the physical needs of widows. And consider the trust that would be involved in that. These men were entrusted with the care of these needy women and perhaps in time with other sensitive needs. These cannot be men who were out for a buck then. They cannot be men whose word cannot be trusted then. And they cannot be men whose appetites are not under control for they're trusted with the up-close care of the flock. They would be handling sensitive situations. They would be relied on by the elders to do their job. And they would be looked to as examples among the flock for they would be appointed by the elders for this care. And that's why character is so important. It is crucial that our deacons at Heritage Bible Church are dignified, upstanding, respectable men that can be trusted with the immensely important responsibility of shouldering so many of the up-close physical needs of the flock. And your elders are committed to it, and I pray you're committed to it. So they serve the church's physical needs. In doing so, there on the ground in Jerusalem, they also served the church's unity. They served the church's unity. The Hellenists brought a complaint. Apparently, there was friction between the two groups. Friction natural to larger groups. This Jerusalem church was probably at least over 3,000 large. You remember at Pentecost, 3,000 believed were baptized, and that day added to the church. So those that made the church up were at least those 3,000 who believed on the Lord Jesus and were baptized that day. That's a big group. And these men, these deacons, relaxed that friction, both in the specific need that they met, but also in the manner in which they met it. These men, these apostles, didn't appoint just anyone to the role. The deacons were, as they have been called, uh, shock absorbers. I think that's a good image for a deacon, both in the role they fill and the way they fill it. It would be no help to the apostles in that case or the elders here for deacons to serve tables and to stir up trouble as they do so and to plant seeds of dissension and doubt 
and to feed conspiracy theories and to play into our vulnerabilities and weaknesses as a very large group ourselves. Deacons are shock absorbers. And they're that for us here at Heritage. Often our elders will bring the deacons in on something that we're working on. We have a rotation where each of our meetings, we've got two deacons in there just hanging out, observing. And then we've got elders in their meetings and we can't always talk with them about everything that we're talking about as elders. But at the right time, we pray strategically. We bring them in on things. Not always for their agreement necessarily. We can't bring them on everything uh, that we've been through by way of discussion, but certainly for understanding and back and forth and, and help even in communicating with you. The deacons are a great service and a help to you and to us in these, in these things. So the deacons serve physical needs in that first century church. They, in serving the physical needs, served the church's unity, both in what they were doing and in the manner in which they went about it. And then in verse 7 from Acts 6, you don't need to turn there, It reads, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. In serving the church's unity through these physical needs, they also serve the church's mission. You know, it can be the case that when a church isn't flourishing in its evangelism or in its local mission, it's not always the case, but it can be the case that it's owing to dysfunction among the members in their respective roles, a lack of submission and deference on the part of the broader membership, a lack of convictional word-based leadership on the part of the elders, and the absence of healthy servant deacons or the presence of deacons who make trouble and stir up trouble, all taking the church off of its mission. Well, here we see that the numbers of the church were increasing And that with the increase came friction and trouble within the church. And so the apostles wisely appointed a role of deacon that would help to deal with that friction and encourage the church's unity. And as a result, we read that the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied. Not not a certain outcome, but no doubt in this case, through the wise leadership of the elders, an outcome nevertheless. And praise God for it. The word was unleashed. And so I'm thankful for heritage and our deacons here that we don't have merely tech or finance hobbyists, but lovers of Jesus, lovers of his precious flock, I can account to that, and his mission. Men who ask good questions, men who are a great help to us elders for deacons who serve in deliberately restrained ways, recognizing their God-designed role, but who are nevertheless unrestrained, unrelenting in their hard work on your behalf and in loving you in behind-the-scenes ways and in up-close, very personal ways. Speaking specifically of meeting tangible needs like those of the widows in Jerusalem, some will say that the role of deacon is limited to mercy ministry kinds of things. So structure, a church might structure their deacon ministry uh, aimed only at mercy ministry type needs. I think the principle here is rather that that was the need of the hour in freeing the elders up for their specific work. So our, our deacons deal more broadly with ministry needs here at the church than Um, mercy ministry needs. But speaking specifically of those, there are two ways that our deacons are about this kind of on-the-ground mercy work. Through a benevolence committee, 
that meets regularly to evaluate needs that we learn of, that you may come to us with, and carefully, wisely adjudicating and making decisions on how money will be uh, administered to help some of you in great times of need, and helping in ways that don't actually hurt you or enable you. So sometimes there are a whole host of other needs that you have besides a, a physical monetary need, and we're all over helping you. Uh, however you need help. You're more than uh, somebody to cut a check to where that's specifically and strategically needed. But there are often other needs in connection with that. And we're blessed to help serve our deacons are. But second, there's a second way that they do this. And that's in their own, their own disbursement across our ministry in structured ways through shepherding groups. So at our church, we have, oh, some 30-some shepherding groups, collections of members. And then Let's say every two or three or four, there's a deacon assigned. And often those deacons are activated to help leverage the time, availability, even resources of those shepherding groups and care for one person. And over the last number of years, it's beautiful how that structure and the delegation of deacons across the church has unleashed the church for its care of itself they're like, pardon the illustration, I'm working on figuring a lawn out that is doing its own thing right now. They're like a fertilizer scattered abroad the entire church. So they're helping bring the church to life. As the whole body cares for itself, they help stimulate the body to do its own good work, caring for you in the process. The first way is easier, easier to me- measure, that is benevolent care. Uh, through a benevolence committee, that second way is much harder to measure, but it goes a lot, lot deeper. And many of you have felt it and been a part of it. So these men must, because of the responsibility with which they're entrusted, they must be dignified. They must be dignified. Second, his doctrine. Test number two, his doctrine, verses nine through 10. Verse nine, they must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, with a clear conscience. In this way, deacons are like the elders. Notice in in verse eight, he says, likewise deacons. There are some similarities, certainly in these qualifications, and this is one that is similar to the elders. In soundness, they must be doctrinally faithful, but they're not the same here in function. He doesn't need to be able to teach. This is a crucial difference between what elders do and deacons do. And you can see it in the qualifications. It is not required that the deacons be able to teach the word of God. Now, we all have to teach the word of God, lowercase t, in the course of our uh, love for one another and holding the Bible out as members of our church. But the elders are what we could call loudspeakers for the word of God, out front shepherding and leading with the word. That's not required for or entailed with the role of a deacon, though they can teach. But that doesn't mean they can be mushy. They must hold to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. They must hold, not like holding onto the wheel, uh, steering wheel of a car. No holding on, if you will, for dear life. That's how we hold on to the things that we believe. Holding on not to their beer, holding on not to their wallet, holding on not to whatever it is in this world that they might they might love. It's holding on to the mystery of the faith. Or in the language of chapter six, which we'll hear later, words to those who are especially wealthy, they must lay hold of that which is truly 
life. Deacons with the elders are leading our church in laying hold of that which is truly life. So they must be men of sound faith. They must hold to the mystery of the faith. Now, when I say holding on to the mystery of the faith, that might kind of sound like holding on to a cloud. Holding on to the How do you hold on to a mystery? Uh, it's a mystery. That's what it might sound like. Well, mystery is not for us a thing mysterious and unknown, not as New Testament Christians, but a thing formerly hidden, now revealed. Mystery in the New Testament is in almost every one of its uses a technical term, a theological term with theological meaning for that which has been revealed. In some traditions through a bad translation so many years ago in the Latin, it's where the word uh, sacrament comes from, have misunderstood the language of and the theological category of mystery in the New Testament. Catholics get this wrong. Anglicans get this wrong. Lutherans get this wrong. It's a term often wrongly applied to baptism and the Lord's Supper and Catholics as well to marriage. Mystery should not be a mysterious word and it shouldn't elicit feelings of mystery or dullness of conviction or unclarity. In New Testament terms, mystery has to do with the revealing of that which was formerly unclear. Listen to its uses here. We don't hear here notes of confusion or uncertainty, but notes of revealed clarity. So Romans 16. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Now hear Paul in Ephesians 3. When you read this, his words, you can perceive, that's understanding, my insight into the mystery of Christ. What is that? Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it, the mystery, has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan and the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known, revealed to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And he says in Colossians 1, we were just in Colossians for many months, the mystery hidden for ages and generations is now revealed to his saints. And on and on and on he goes. And here, deacons are to hold on to the mystery of the faith. All of that pent-up tension of how God would bring about his promises and solve the problem of sin and death. Hints and breadcrumbs and little sparks of revelation along the way in the Old Testament. And when Jesus comes and breaks into the world as a son of David and a son of Abraham, and as he lives a righteous life and performs miracles, and as he teaches with authority, he shows that he is the one who was long promised. And his cross is the answer to the big question, the big mysterious question, how would God do it? How would he deal with the problem of sin and take it away forever? How would he make for himself a new people, Jew and Gentile, one new humanity? Well, in Jesus Christ's life and death and resurrection, we have a revelation of that mystery. And deacons must hold on to the mystery of this faith. 
the eternal sonship of Jesus, his incarnation, his righteous life, his substitutionary death in the place of sinners, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to the Father's right hand and his present reign, his intercession for the saints right now, his spirit's work to draw you and me and to regenerate us and to fill his people and his promised return. Certainly none of these things should be of any hesitation. They should be clear and fixed as matters of first importance in the minds of all of our leaders, elders and deacons. And maybe Christianity feels like a bundle of mysteries to you. Well, at Heritage, I pray that as you hang around and as you keep coming and as you get to know the elders who lead spiritually here and the deacons who lead at our side, that you will get to know men who have considered these things and who hold fast to the mystery of the faith and can lead you in the same. It's something we hold on to and deacons are proof in part that it's true. They have a good grip on it. And what kind of grip is that? What makes for a good grip? What makes for a, a truly holding on to it? Two things, they hold on to it without hesitation. It's personal, it's thoughtful, it's without reservation. He isn't like, yeah, I can sign it, but honestly, or I know what's meant by it, but really what I think is, or I can technically agree to it, but no, he holds to it with a clear conscience. He holds to it without hesitation. And for our purposes here, our elders and deacons are committed to our church's statement of faith without reservation, without hesitation. And we trust that one would resign where a doctrine becomes a matter of unbelief. And we hold the mystery with a clear conscience, which means clear of hypocrisy. Paul speaks of his pursuit and his aim in this letter to Timothy as fostering a sincere faith in Timothy and in the church at Ephesus. So there should be no hypocrisy in our leaders. And how do we know when we've got a hypocrite? Well, this is part of what the testing is for. Deacons should be tested and then let them serve as deacons, we're told. I don't know what exactly that testing would have entailed. What we can say is the testing would yield a clear and public validation that the man meets the qualifications. So how do we do that here? Well, at Heritage, our deacons are selected through a process, a careful process. Annually, members will suggest names for consideration, recommend. The elders will evaluate possibilities, get up close with some. And we have an application for deacons as well that involves uh, their wives contributing a bit. Um, If we have kept the process right, as with elders, there should be no unexamined questions of qualification by the time we arrive for a vote on the part of the broader congregation or our elders. All of that, if our process is faithful, should be searched out before that day. Really, honestly, there should be no vote from any member that has had due process to come to an elder with a matter of disqualification on the part of a deacon candidate. There should be no vote on the part of somebody who believes the man to be disqualified for the role. If we've all been responsible in the course of our process together. And in fact, if someone does vote no to a deacon or frankly to an elder believing that they're disqualified and they haven't gone through the normal process, that no vote is actually an expression of irresponsibility stopping short of what they should do maybe with more courage. So let me encourage you. These qualifications are so very important. 
So when we uh, solicit names for recommendation and when we put names before you, consider that as a matter of prayer individually, as a family, and certainly be at our family meetings to consider these things together. Certainly the elders invite all of your input wherever you might uh, discern from your specific vantage point, which is legitimate, that there might be a matter of disqualification. And take that exhortation seriously, but also as a comfort to know that everyone here has been told to come and talk to us if they discern there's a problem. In the course of the qualifying a man for deaconship, the diaconate, a deacon role, uh, his wife is consulted and she contributes a bit, which leads us to a third test, a third test. Test number three, his domestic life, his domestic life, verses 11 through 12. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. He's the husband of one wife. He's a one-woman man, a devoted husband. His mind and eyes may wander because of the enduring nature and temptation of sin, but he does not chase, he does not dwell on, flirt with, or hide sexual sin. His wife is his romantic interest, and if he's not married, he's not a womanizer. He's sexually faithful. And he manages his household well. We explored this last week. And he does this for two reasons. He must be able to do this for two reasons. For his family's sake, he should not take on more church responsibility if his home is not in order. But the home is also a testing ground for his management of his responsibilities in the role of deacon, if he's to take that on. And management is a good word for the role of deacon to describe the role. You think of 3,000 members at the church in Jerusalem would require more than men who merely fill a simple task, but often involves oversight of major areas and of others in service. Now, verse 11, he addresses a different party. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Their wives must be dignified, qualifications for wives. I want to pause here and deal with an important question. Is this talking about wives Or is it talking about a female, a woman expression of the role? It says wives, but you might need to know that the word for wives and women is the same word in the Greek. The context will always determine its meaning. Often enough, the context is clear, certainly if husbands are mentioned. You may have seen a church that had lady deacons. Some of our own church plants, for example, have deaconesses. What's that all about? And is it biblical? Well, there are good reasons to believe this, this, this refers to a lady expression of the role in the office. I'll, I'll outline a number of them. It does seem a bit odd that wives would be mentioned here in the list for deacons, but not be mentioned in the qualification list for elders. Wouldn't it even be more important for wives to be mentioned in the case of an elder? And it says, likewise here. In verse 8, it says, likewise deacons. And then in verse 10, likewise women or likewise wives, as translated here in some translations. It appears to address another class or division of the role of deacon. Grammatically speaking, that's what it would appear to say. So why not the word deaconess? Well, the word deacon wouldn't have to refer merely, merely to male deacons. It could refer to male or female deacons. Phoebe mentioned in Romans 16.1, It wasn't an official use of the term, but she's called a deaconess, a servant 
of the Lord and his people. And all this makes sense. It would align, as we would expect, with the prohibition against uh, women teaching men in 1 Timothy 2. The role of deacon wouldn't entail that kind of ministry among the body, but it would with elders. So it makes sense that there wouldn't be female elders. That would be clear. But it would seem reasonable. There's no theological reason that we couldn't have female deacons, according to the text. But there are, I think, slightly, and in my evaluation, only slightly better reasons to believe this does refer uh, to wives. Men are picked out in Acts chapter 6. Men filled with the Holy Spirit. Why does he mention wives here and not under elder qualifications then? Well, it seems to me reasonable, given the hands-on and non-teaching nature of the deacon role, that women would be tethered closely, even partnering closely in tangible ways alongside their deacon husbands in a way that is different uh, in the way that wives relate with their elder husbands, given the nature of an elder's work, his wife is not so closely up close with and alongside him in his, his work. This doesn't mean that we should think of an elder's wife can be wild since qualifications aren't mentioned for his wife there. It's just a part of managing his own household as well. It just means that an elder's wife won't be intimately involved in his specific work in the same way that a deacon's wife will be. The woman here also only get a few lines, which is curious to me. It seems imbalanced. It seems better to see this as one among a list of qualifications addressing them specifically rather than a separate expression of the role. Note that he turns again to address deacons in the following following verse. So why did I take you through the balance of arguments there? Well, I ought to say that if I had come here a year ago and we had deaconesses, I wouldn't have any complaint. I might even, in arriving at this passage, said I think there's slightly better reasons to see deaconesses. It really is that close. So why did I walk you through it? We don't need to do all of our homework in a given sermon. That would be distracting and not helpful. But two reasons I share this with you. First, to protect the gender role distinction when it comes to mixed groups of teaching in the role of elder. If one day you go from here to another church, or we partner with a faithful church and they have female deacons, you shouldn't be alarmed by that whatsoever. You should be if they have female elders, pastors, women teaching mixed groups in formal ways, for reasons we explored last week. Those roles are rooted in creation. And second, we see this role as assigned to men, that is the deacon role, if I'm right. However, women, at least lowercase d, are deaconing all over the place in the New Testament. Lady after lady mentioned. Again, Romans 16, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, a deaconess of the church. Paul commends the servanthood of women here and again and time and again across our New Testaments. And they too receive reward for their noble service. All of these women receive a reward. So to wrap some things up here, speaking of deacons, his dignity, his doctrine, and his domestic life. Those are the qualifications that we're to look for. And deacons are to be men with a good standing among us. And they earn that good standing by their office and their faithful service. And we have so many men with a good standing among us. I'll close this sermon with a few suggestions, even exhortations. First, become a member. If you're not a member at Heritage, it's kind of like saying, 
I appreciate your leadership, elders and deacons, and want to benefit from the community that it creates and the work that it entails. But I want the ability to slide out unnoticed if I can. And it may not be saying this, but it can mean saying, I want your exhortation and encouragement on my terms. New Testament Christianity involves overt public identification with local assemblies in which you're accounted for. Elders give account to God for the flock, and deacons are deployed to serve the flock that the elders account for. So become a member. Get to know your elders and deacons. It's a two-way thing. We work at getting to know you, but there's a whole lot of you. So make it easy for us to know you and to care for you and to understand you. Each sheep is different, and our understanding of the flock as a whole is helped for our understanding of every individual sheep. And it is our pleasure to know you. You are no burden, and it is no imposition for you to invite us over for a meal or to seek us out for coffee or even for those on staff to want to meet with us midweek just to get acquainted. Please know a few elders and a few deacons, certainly one of each. Then get to know the process for identifying and appointing elders and deacons and participate, fully participate, which is your responsibility as members. And finally, obey your elders, for this is how Jesus shepherds you. Kids, you know that sometimes you don't understand what your parents are doing or are thinking, uh, but they're out for your good and they have their reasons and often enough they give them. And often enough, they aren't altogether clear in your own mind or they become clear with time. But you honor the Lord, children, by taking their lead in life. And it is not dissimilar in the life of the church, assuming we've appointed people that are qualified to the roles. So let them lead with joy. Obey your elders and esteem your deacons. Esteem them. The Lord does. Make sure, let us make sure that our deacons have a good standing among us and that that's plain to them. And let your deacons serve you. Don't hide your need and don't feel like you are a burden. They are appointed to the humble and very honorable task of caring for you in up close and very personal ways. Take advantage of God's care for you in the appointment of deacons here at Heritage. When you pray for God's help and for his comfort, even with respect to tangible things, one way that God will answer that prayer request is through his body, which includes elders and includes deacons. And in all of this, see Jesus' care for the church. For these qualifications that we've explored in two Sundays, like the qualifications for elders, are a reminder of Jesus' love for us all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this list of qualifications, Uh, a list that so much of it is held out before all of us as a matter of basic discipleship, being dignified and not double-tongued and holding to the mystery of faith. But we thank you for the appointment by the Holy Spirit of godly elders and of deacons who are humble and who serve honorably, who exemplify this list. So Father, I speak this as a Christian and member here And we all pray this together, that you would shepherd us through your elders and through your deacons here as they lead us as examples and as they lead us in love. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.